Hello, and thank you for listening to the MicroBinFi podcast. Here, we will be discussing topics in microbial bioinformatics. We hope that we can give you some insights, tips, and tricks along the way. There is so much information we all know from working in the field, but nobody writes it down. There is no manual, and it's assumed you'll pick it up. We hope to fill in a few of these gaps. My co-hosts are Dr. Nabil Ali Khan and Dr. Andrew Page. I am Dr. Lee Katz. Both Andrew and Nabil work in the Quadrum Institute in Norwich, UK, where they work on microbes in food and the impact on human health. I work at Centers for Disease Control and Prevention and am an adjunct member at the University of Georgia in the U.S. So it's the end of 2019, and we thought we'd like to pause and look back at what we were working on. What resonated with us and where we think the microbin field will go in the new year? So what have you all learned in 2019 and what did you work on in 2019? Well, something I've learned uh, over 2019 is how to use Galaxy. I know it's a really old project, but actually getting to grips with it has meant that uh, it saved me a huge amount of work. I'm no longer bashing a keyboard. Now I can just click a mouse, you know, and uh, since we have a lovely Galaxy system set up here, it's made my life very, very easy. I can point and click. And what's better is I can just share that with... uh, different researchers around my institute here quite easily and they can do the same thing as well you know there's no need to learn how to program that kind of thing i think it is a really useful skill um a little plug for fda in the u.s is um they've really gone full on with galaxy tracker and they're doing a great job with the galaxy interface and letting um our state and local partners um, use that interface and and do some amazing work so it's never too late. Um, another thing that I found uh, really cool was Kraken 2 that's come out through the year, and that is just phenomenally good. I know with Kraken 1, they had a huge problem with memory usage, and you know, you'd need like a gazillion gigabytes of memory to, to make something, but now it's just fantastic. It's faster, use less memory, and I think it's more accurate as well. What do you think, Nabil? Yeah, I think Kraken 2 is definitely my bioinformatics tool of the year it i think the paper just came out very recently in in genome research of this um for 2019 and it has become a mainstay tool for a range of different applications so even your basic qc for sequencing from cultured isolates you're using it all the way up to looking at complex uh, microbial ecology questions it definitely has improved with the with the classification results they're not there used to be a lot of false positives now it's a lot cleaner and another tool uh, bracken has been one of my also another favorite that's related to kraken too also it came out in the paper came out in 2017 but it's had some iterative improvements over the last couple of years and that and i've been using it a lot this year and this is taking that improved information from kraken too and then, and where Kraken is classifying the reads to the best matching location in the taxonomic tree, it doesn't estimate the abundance of a specific species. And this tool, Bracken, is actually doing that extra step. So you now get this really nice table of just saying how much uh, E. coli is in my sample, not taxonomically with all of the different hits, but just how which species are there and to what degree are there the sample. And that's really, really two years ago was would have been really difficult to do out of the box. That would have needed a lot of manual work. And it's great to see that those tools in that field has moved along so quickly. Actually, I find uh, my favorite database now with Kraken 2 is GTDB. It's just phenomenally good. It's better than all the other uh, databases out there. Have you used that, Lee? 
Yeah, I love it. And, and it is really good. Every single um, taxon has either been um, better established or just kind of redefined as it dives into um, every genome available to it. And it is extremely comprehensive. In fact, um, Henkenbacher and I made a Kraken database from it, and I think it's now being used by a variety of people. Although it's tough to really get a, a head count of how many people are using a tool on a command line. We're using it. Yeah, we use it. Awesome. <laughs> <That's> a, yeah. <laughs> Uh, so yeah, so GTTB also came out, uh, I think, I think that's a 2018 paper that when it came out, but it was like December 2018, so it kind of counts for 2019, I think. What, the, the paper itself, so the reference database is amazing, but also the paper that describes it was really powerful where they define a set of 120 um, ubiquitous single copy proteins and then they build this phylogeny of it's 94,000 bacterial genomes. And about 14,000 of those were from un un uncultured organisms. The, their new definitions is really trying to capture life, including that which is coming from metagenomic assembly, which I think is kind of, which has been used, but not to this level. And so it's an interesting paper, and uh, it really pushed a, a quantifiable, consistent classification scheme that contradicts a lot of the current definitions. And Basically, so they've redefined what a species is. Basically, yeah, and it's in a systematic way that, that we can just pick up and use. So it's really good, like, from front to finish, the theory, the new theory that they put out, and the implementation is just great. About the same time, I went ahead and started releasing my own database, Calamari, and it's difficult for me to, to see where it is in the space of things with GTDB um, because it is so comprehensive. And I think I'm being a little bit more um, careful now that I see this other database out there. And I'm just trying to see Calamari for a maybe a subset of genomes that we care about more in public health and, and looking at maybe only completed genomes to really um, remove any contamination in it. So it, it might still have a space. I'm still going to go forward with it. But that was a big push in 2019 for me. The, the downside of GDTB is that it's about tens of gigs. Oh yeah, like it takes forever to run, but it's really, really good. Yeah, and it's fantastic when you just chuck a, a metagenome assembly in, or even just reads from a <laughs> from a metagenome sample. But yeah, there is a case I think for uh, a more focused, targeted public health question as well. So I think like you know things like calamari are definitely still still um, relevant, uh, even with, with with such great resources being developed alongside it. And uh, just a note to say that I've been doing a lot of um, long-read metagenomic assemblies and stuff like that, and GTDB has been just indispensable for figuring out all that stuff. So uh, that's really good for um, the long-read um, metagenomics, you're saying? Yeah, Promethean. Oh, that's awesome. That's, and that's good to know for us, too. I'll actually take that back with me to the lab. You guys came out with uh, SoCrew. I thought that was really interesting. Yeah, thanks a million. Uh, we're still trying to get it published somewhere. We have shopped around a load of journals, and the editors keep shoving it back at us without sending it out for review. So we're, we're a bit bitter about, uh, about that, you know, not being able to get it out so quickly. But hopefully we'll get it into a journal sometime soon. If you know any editors out there, please let us know. But uh, for those of you who don't know, Sokru is just a way of taking in a bacterial assembly uh, that's fully circularized and then working out the major structural variants in it between the rRNA operons. You actually do see this strange, not strange, but you do see these rearrangements of the chromosome on a large scale, uh, which seems to be linked with a niche adaptation. So you see a lot in Typhi, and uh, you know, we all know Typhi 
it can be in a person, then it goes into water, and then suddenly it, you know, it's unculturable, then it gets back into a person, and it looks identical, you know, so what's happened in between, we don't know, but maybe this is one extra step towards that. Very cool. And, and speaking of that, did I pronounce it right? Sakru, yeah, it's an Irish word. And I, and I just think this is a, probably a good time to address a problem that I've had this whole time on this podcast, addressing your city. You mean Norwich? Norwich. Norwich. Did yeah, I say it right? that's right, yeah. Okay, that's been bugging me. Norwich. <laughs> yeah, you, you, you don't pronounce it how it's spelled. And in my city, a lot of the locals say Atlanta. Anyway, just, just getting that out there, I guess. Have you guys been using um, containers a lot also? Like Singularity? Oh, yeah, big time. Well, Singularity and Docker, it depends on the uh, actual requirement we have. But I know on our cluster here, we use Singularity a lot. And we use Singularity on our Galaxy system as well. But I know my own laptop, I'd always use Docker because it's just a bit easier. And for all of our tools, we provide Docker containers as well and put them up onto Docker Hub. We use a lot of containers now too, where we're trying to get into it. And um, unfortunately, like in in a professional HPC environment where hundreds of scientists at CDC are sharing it, it just Docker just becomes not a, a great idea. And um, we've been relying a lot more on Singularity. And that's been going great. Just in terms of having a space where something is installed and you have all the dependencies resolved for you and you don't have to sit there bashing your head why this particular thing won't compile. It probably saved me a lot of time this year. Uh, it sort of reminds me of the first time when you start playing around with virtual environments in Python or something like that, and you just you just install it, and it's the same state as what you expect it to be. And d- does anyone remember trying to do that, d- you know, system-level Python, the first time you start playing around with it, and you put all your modules, and then they start conflicting, and everything breaks? Oh, yeah, that, that's classic. Yeah, and then you switch to a virtual environment, you're like, oh, my God, this is great. I can work on every every single, all of my different packages, and none of them are touching each other. So for me, containers provide that level of relief. It's not perfect, though. I did run into a couple of instances where it's sort of what the underlying hardware still has an effect on what's happening in the container. So it's not truly contained, contained, but in majority of cases, like, you know, in most practical applications, you are pretty much getting this nice little black box that has uh, everything specified the way that you expect it to be and other things aren't going to influence it. That's really, really powerful. So what I love is when you put it onto Docker Hub for other researchers to download, you know, they're going to get exactly the software you built and it'll, you know it's going to work out of the box. But then you can link it into Travis and you can run all of your tests then using that same Docker container. So actually you're guaranteeing that I know the tests run on this Docker that I'm giving out to, to people. So it's great for being sure that you have something that works just magically out of the box. In our... Uh State health bioinformaticians, who affectionately call themselves Staff B, State Health Bioinformaticians, um, they've been making a lot of really good images online, and they have a really nice collection of bioinformatics tools now, and they're still adding on to it. One more amazing thing, I, I like that you mentioned Travis. They've been starting to get into unit testing also, and it, it just kind of assures that everything works correctly. I really like this new future of continuous integration for us, which I know... It's probably the past for a lot of people, but um, it's really taking off for us. I think year to year, you don't see uh, a real fundamental shift in the way people work very quickly. But uh, things, t- things take time and things change over time. But I'm seeing that same trend that very quickly, like if I think about this time last year, or this time the year before, 
this was something that people just talked about in a in a meeting about having oh yeah it'd be great if we had things in containers it'd be great if we could do we could have all the CI set up and now it's just sort of it's quite passe to have it there it's just like okay yeah this is it's just part and parcel of writing in the paper yeah it's up on GitHub and there's a Docker container on um on for mastery also especially um I created like this Perl package right and. And I'm and I'm still on a, on a high that it was just published in the Journal of Open Source Software, and uh, the Staff B group actually containerized it, and I think someone else put it into the Conda environment, and all this stuff happened without me knowing about it, but it was all this really helpful stuff that a third party could just do to make the package wonderful. And when the reviewers for the Journal of Open Source uh, software saw that they were containerized even though I didn't do it I got a pat on the back so I it felt a little awkward but also like great job community like thank you so much for helping this whole process out yeah I don't know if it counts for this year but uh, maybe it was at the start of this year but we did have that for grape tree where someone just out of the blue uh, put it we had it on we got it onto pip at least and then someone just got into bioconda and it was just done wow and I was like oh okay they sent this pull request. Oh, you need to change this so that it works better. Like, all right. Um, this was not something we could think we could talk about like a few years ago, where someone's code was such that it could be packaged and, and by a third party and being made easily available. I mean, a few years ago it was like you couldn't even read people's code. It was just the state of the maturity. The maturity of our programming has definitely changed or improved greatly. So you're saying bioinformatics is growing up? Bioinformatics is growing up. I think we've had to grow up. Because now the people who ask us to do work want these reliable, versioned, controlled packages, tools, applications. So having having to provide that that provenance means we've had to grow up along the way. It's true. So uh, speaking of, I mean, being professional and uh, just uh, growing up, I see on your notes also um, you've been getting into things like SnakeMake and FlowCraft, and I think that maybe. Well, that might be a huge change for 2019, too, for bioinformatics. Yeah, I think workflow managers... I did play around with SnakeMake in the past, but I've had to use... Uh, I've, had to, I've been dabbling a lot more with workflow managers this year, and SnakeMake and XFlow definitely change the way you do your bioinformatics. I wrote a workflow in NextFlow. It took me, like, on the weekend, it took me a couple of hours. Okay, a couple of hours and I remember that I did the same sort of procedure in my PhD, like having something that would spin up jobs and check if they're done and then run something else and then do something else and check if it failed or not. And that took me months. I mean, yeah, I was a weaker programmer then, but that took me months to set up. And now if I was a student starting, it would probably take me a weeks, less days to get the same sort of workflow up and running because we have such powerful boilerplate workflow managers that allow us to get to so much of what we used to just spend ages trying to optimize. There is a, a note of caution though for the community where we have so many workflow managers now and most of them you know, don't necessarily work fully with CWL that we may be in a position where we have just too many that are totally incompatible and we're back to square one. I agree. But I will give a shout out to Flowcraft as well uh, assembler flow or flowcraft which is built on top of nextflow and provides this dynamic uh, workflow management of genome assemblies and then downstream analysis as well that's an excellent excellent tool 
uh, that came out more or less this year as well. I know the big thing this year um, has been machine learning, where every single CV I've seen and every grant application and call for funding seems to mention machine learning somewhere, which is interesting. Or blockchain. No, well, that was last year. Last year was blockchain. Yes. <laughs> this machine this learning year okay. is machine learning everywhere this is machine and AI. Learning. And for the most part, it's people just repackage standard stats and whatever as machine learning. Or, you know, they, they throw something into R and say it's machine learning. But actually, you know, there's a bit more to it than that. Do you have the same thing in the, the U.S.? In the U.S., I would say that a lot of people are trying to get into machine learning for sure. Um, I've heard some talks that might have been internal only at CDC, so I won't go too much into them. But um, people keep trying to do more and more in them. However, the stuff that I do see coming out from CDC and partners and everybody, like, the more successful things are still outside of machine learning. So I think it still shows promise, but right now it's not amazing awesome yet. I've read a couple of publications this year and seen a couple of talks in the machine learning space where it looked like they knew what they were doing and they were very targeted specific studies but they did get a result that that made sense and, and start making the technology look so you know actually practical and actually accurate and that's very reassuring so it's it's moved I think it's going to start moving away from the buzzwordiness so so next year are you saying that it's going to go either it's going to go out of fashion or it's going to actually live up to its promise I think it'll be a few years before it lives up to its promise and by then the buzz will have gone out of it but actually there'll be real results in it and I think there's um, one more major topic that we haven't touched on yet which is uh, long reads right long reads are getting better and better and I think that you mentioned it um, earlier briefly um, Andrew just that long reads are helping you with metagenomics is, it, is there, any, are there any other avenue yeah, so I'm finding these days that most of what I do is with long reads, either from PacBio or from Nanopore. And so most of my tools recently and software and scripts and whatever have been just focused on analyzing long read data or maybe assemblies that you can get previously from Illumina. So it is the future. I don't see myself going backwards, certainly into short reads much more. Um, if you look at, say, PacBio or Nanopore, you can do realistically with the yields you can get out of them you can do huge levels of multiplexing for bacteria isolates so i'd imagine in the next year or so you're going to have you know 96 bacteria on a single flow cell or 384 on a single uh, sql2 smart cell so all of that means cheaper better quality assemblies for bacteria and we can do a lot more in quite different science you know once you start have, having um the full complete picture you know think of all the things you can do yeah so this is something i've seen in conferences and in the literature that a lot of people have been digging into antimicrobial resistance finding that a lot of it is obviously driven by mobile genetic elements and the placement of that mobile genetic elements so recovering the entire chromosome and the entire plasmid sequence is really important but that's and that's always been the case with with, with shops from the beginning but now people are actually able to follow up on that. I see more and more papers actually saying, yeah, we found this plasma and it was interesting, and we did long read sequences and we recovered it. Before that was, you'd throw your hands up and say, well, we don't know. So more and more, th more, and more this year, I've been seeing that uh, perspective in papers. I think people are going to, as the technology improves, that's going to definitely become a research focus, if not already. We're very lucky now. We have great tools like Fly, and you can just throw in a load of long reads, like huge data sets, and you get like 
awesome assemblies out. Like I put, I had a metagenomic assembly the other day and I got f some fully complete circularized bacteria at the other end, which is just insane. Without doing any special work, you know, you press the button and it magically comes out. Yeah, no need for binning. Yeah, I mean, there is a bit of an arms race with the long read assemblers. They seem to keep one upping themselves, so. Good. Yeah, which is really good for us as consumers of these tools. So yeah, Fly, and then Fly came out, made a big splash this year, and then I think, and then other ones have sort of caught up. I don't know who's the best at the moment. Was there Red Bean as well? And yeah. Was it WTGDB2? Or? Well, that's Red Bean there. Eh? Red Bean, and then there's, uh, and then there's other. Ra. Ra, yeah, Ra. Or is that an old one? I think. Uh, is it a normal one? I don't know, but we can check. And of course, canoe. Canoe, canoe, and, and then people are still using Unicycler as well. So a lot of different options there for the long read assembly, and it's good to see. That can only get better in the, year to in the years to come with so much like competition there in that space. I'm trying to remember, did you also come up with your, short, your long read mapper this year too? So last year I had a program called Crocus and a program called Tiptoft, and those were taking in long reads and in real time you can work out what plasmids are there or what the MLST is which has been quite useful and I know uh, some groups have used um, say Crocus for detecting MLST um, in outbreak situations and are able to get the ST very very rapidly which is quite nice. Um, well I guess along the along the lines of long reads um, we have a MinION users group at CDC and so far, nobody has come up with like the unified workflow. And in part, that's because the technology moves so fast. And another reason is because we work on so many different things from mycotics to, to viruses to bacteria, everything, um, from to, to much more than I've even discussed. So um, it's just hard to unify. Um, but one innovation that we have come up with is a nanopore workflow from our lab in Foodborne. And so this is available on GitHub right now. We just call it nanopore workflow. A module for, for cleaning and base calling and module for this, module for that. And then there's a separate directory with just workflows and you pick and choose which of your plugins to use, which of your modules to use to create a workflow. And I think that we're pretty close to um, polishing it off. Uh, Curtis Capsack and our lab is leading that. Moving on from that, any, yeah, any super cool publications or tools that either you've been using just by the by? Um, well, I'll I'll say something that's a little outdated again, but um, one publication that just blew my mind this last year, even though it was published in 2018, was uh, the one dealing with. Uh, the transfer bootstrap expectation. Um, do I have that title in front of me? It's called Renewing Felselstein's Phylogenetic Bootstrap in the Era of Big Data. And I, th I thought that was sort of transformative to, to me. So just for people who don't know what that is, it's the transfer bootstrap expectation is this newer way to calculate confidence values on your phylogeny. And normally a bootstrap value is how many of um, your random trees agree with the main tree on every single ancestor node, and you get a percentage. But transfer bootstrap expectation um, takes that idea and turns it from a black and white, like either it's the same clade or it's not, to 
how many of the descendants appear under that node? And you get a, a slightly more reflective confidence value at each node. And that, that really struck me. So um, I've been trying to use it more. Um, I need to get more into it, to be honest, but I really like it. Uh, one of the papers that really stuck me, I mean, this came out, this is December 2018, was the backdating paper from Xavier Didlow and others. And that is a new tool that allows you to do uh, Bayesian inference of ancestral dates on bacterial phylogenies. And that is very easy to use. It's an R package, and I've been using it throughout the year, just playing around with it. It's very handy. It has all of the uh, all the little tools you need to assess whether your tree has converged, whether it's correct, whether it's supported, whether there's enough backend data to actually support the uh, the there's any real temporal signal in your tree and so on. And so that's been a real pleasure for me to work with something that you know you just install it and you can start using it and playing around with it. That's really cool. Have you used it on anything more public healthy yet? Or are you still playing with that? Maybe. <laughs> oh, okay. Well, I'm looking forward to 2020 when we see what happens. So what about looking forward uh, for the year or years ahead? I think for all three of us, maybe we're biased, but the obvious thing is the promise of long reads in the years to come. I mean, it's changed a lot in the last year, but what are the current limitations now for long reads as it stands? I think quality is getting better, you know, obviously as it always is with the, say, the 10.3 flow cell that's coming out that should be quite good for minion and it's getting cheaper and cheaper and cheaper all the time and the yield is going up you know you know it's all going in the right direction and it's competing massively with lumina now so i think we've reached the point where you should be seriously considering any future grants you put in you know focusing only on long reads if it is suitable for your experiments um i'm still getting into it personally but i mean across cdc it's it's transformative um Especially with Minion, it's it's less expensive. Um, every branch, every team wants to have one, and they're just seeing how it can apply to their to their projects. I I can just imagine if we had Minion, for example, for the Haiti cholera outbreak, we could have sent some microbiologists to Haiti and sequenced on the spot right there, and that would have been amazing. So we're currently sending a team out to Bangladesh to do sequencing Minion sequencing out in the country, setting up a lab there. Samples will be collected locally for a campylobacter and they'll be processed and whatever. So it means that it's kind of building capacity locally there. And then we can get a copy of the data and bring it back and do some analysis and uh, develop some methods. But that's really, really awesome for them because they're kind of leaping forward over technology but with long reads. Yeah, I'd love to see things like this integrated into schools. That would be a fantastic biology class. Well, I do know um, some people have gone out, uh, like Kim Judge has gone out to schools and was doing sequencing like in a school, and you know what? That's pretty cool, isn't it? Tell me, tell me more about that. That sounds interesting. Well, I, I recall she was doing well. It was like outreach, so you know, instead of having an incubator, you'd you know warm your stuff in your hands by uh, by rolling the tubes and. You know, basically all the little things you can do to try and cut down the amount of lab equipment you need. So you can actually go into a school or you can go into um, wherever and do some sequencing. And I suppose you've seen people like Nick Lohman sequencing in an airport and in a hotel room, whatever, you know. And it is that easy to do with long reads. 
So I can imagine your your example of cholera in Haiti, you know, people actually being able to do rapid diagnostics in the field. But of course, the next big push will be for culture-free diagnostics. I think the step change for me this year in terms of the long lead space is also the tools behind it have gotten that much better. If you're doing a hybrid assembly, you know, it's almost fire and forget at this stage. And it's really easy to start interrogating your long reads directly with, with different mapping tools like Minimap2 and so on. That's also another side of the coin. Like once you've got the data, how do you process it? But that's also moving at an incredible speed as well. And it helps to have superstars like Ryan Wick out there as well, you know, just pumping out tools and analysis and comparison. Yeah. Is he another robot? Is he real? That's what you get when you hire someone who's like a professional software developer to do, you know, this kind of job. Well, I think he, I think he's vaporwarely. I think he's vaporwarely. He's like Kengli, you know. There's these magic bioinformaticians who, who just do so much they can't possibly be real. <laughs> That's what I'm saying. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> so one of the things that I was introduced to this year was WebAssembly by Will Rowe, and this is taking compiled languages, so things like Rust or Go or C plus plus, and compiling it down so it will run in your web browser. So the obvious example that Will showed was he took his tool group, which does some min hashing and and has that running directly in a browser. I've seen another one which has the SAM tools that runs in the browser so you can do your view sort filtering right there um, without installing anything, without needing, and it'll run on every platform because all of the browsers are basically acting like this self-contained environment. What I couldn't find was Blast, Blast having a, or any sort of local alignment tool available, but something like that would be really amazing because all of a sudden you can do most of your boilerplate basic work, you know, looking for a set of genes you want, MLST typing, looking for, you know, genotyping, whatever, in your browser. Any person, and any person can just go to that website and do it. So here's a naive question. How is this different than JavaScript? So JavaScript is its own language. The idea here is that you have, with some tweaks, you have a, a, a workflow where you can take your compile code and, and move it into bytecode that will run on the browser. The other thing is, is that this is, I don't know how, whether this holds true, but the argument is that this runs lightning fast, as fast as your compile code will run. But you could, in principle, probably write, um, you could probably write a genome assembler in JavaScript. I know people have tried to do all sorts of things like that in, in JavaScript. No, don't do that. <laughs> <laughs> That's just crazy, isn't it? <laughs> so, okay, here's some more naive questions. <laughs> How how do we find WebAssembly tools out there? Is someone like com is someone compiling the bioinformatics WebAssembly tools somewhere? To my knowledge, I think it's it's quite immature with the with the WebAssembly for bioinformatics at the moment. Uh, you just look, but there isn't that much WebAssembly content out there at all to begin with. So just going through all of it, you will find. Uh, you'll find all the bioinformatics stuff really easily. It's not a big amount of information to process. So I'll tell you why this is like really amazing to me. I don't know much about this at all, but we have kind of a challenge to make software and make it available to those who need it. And okay, I might make something like MashTree or you guys might make something like Sockrew and people can run that on the, 
command line, but like, what if you're somebody who's really good at, you know, genome sequencing and you don't really know Linux? Like, this makes things like available to everyone, potentially. Yeah, I, I mean, the thing is, though, is that you still need to have the front end regardless. I mean, you could provide that tool by having the, the back end computation being run through Node.js or running, you know, good old Perl CGI. I mean, it doesn't matter what's happening in the back end. Uh, and you can have all of these processes being run and then just showing that, that data back to the, to the user. So in that case, as far as a, as a user is concerned, that's, that's, that you can accomplish in a lot of different ways. But the part that makes me excited for WebAssembly is you're now scaling out your computation problem because the person's browser, the person's own computer is doing all of the calculations required. So you can have the entire world running the package at once and you don't have to put up the overhead to, to do that for them which is the kind of problem that you run into when you have large centralized databases that are trying to do analysis for, for the entire world. You can now just, it's inherently scalable. Amazing. And I guess if it's in a browser, it's also um, compatible with any computer that runs a browser? Yes, so WebAssembly, I think, is now a standard that is implemented by all major browsers now. So they should, it should be cross-compatible across all of, all of the different browsers and then by extension, all the different operating systems. Wow. So if anyone listening is, is really into this, I think if we had like a bioinformatics repo for WebAssembly or if someone wrote up an instruction manual for this, like that might be very trans transformative, right? Yeah, I mean... <laughs> I will add the caveat, don't get too excited. It is, it's not as easy as just copying a code and one thing, compiling it and getting out the, the product. There is a fair bit of work involved, um, t tweaking it so that it runs in that particular environment. But yes, I think this sort of technology is where it's going to go. In terms of the community, there is Phage, which is just kicking off now. That's the Public Health Alliance for Genomic Epidemiology, I think. We should know. We're, we're all committee members now, I think. Uh, yeah, we're all in some of the working groups. On the working groups, yeah. I mean, the idea of that is, is actually following on a bit from the WebAssembly discussion where they're trying to set up standard protocols for public health epidemiology. So really our little world. But it touches so many people. Absolutely. Really. Yeah. I mean, this is the kind of stuff that eventually would you would be interacting with if you go to a GP. So this is, uh, I suppose the microbial informatics version of GA4GH, which is more the human alliance. Yeah, I think I see Phage like having like a really nice niche where um, I really like how it like recognizes that there's a, a bunch of people around the world, almost like a federation, just um, doing their thing, but they need to be glued together somehow. Like, so it's, it's looking at some important, but not necessarily sexy things like standardizing metadata or standardizing how platforms might communicate with each other but it's so incredibly important this was a good conversation we talked about what we've done and looked at over the last year and you know what software and what publications have caught our eye and what the future might hold in 2020 for bioinformatics so i 
thanks for um, a good conversation and thanks everyone for listening. Thank you all so much for listening to us at home. If you like this podcast, please subscribe and like us on iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud, or the platform of your choice. And if you don't like this podcast, please don't do anything. This podcast was recorded by the Microbial Bioinformatics Group and edited by Nick Waters. The opinions expressed here are our own and do not necessarily reflect the views of CDC or the Quadrum Institute.